15 or more years ago, a, a man in his late 50s showed up at my office reporting a lifetime series of failed relationships with his several wives, children, and business partners. He had lived life to the fullest, he said, and made a whole mountain of money. And though he should probably feel more more guilt than he did, he wasn't entirely displeased with what he'd experienced. Interesting experience, after all, was what gave zest to his life. He loved the freedom to do whatever he pleased, whenever he pleased. He was a kind of a modern libertine. I asked what brought him to my door then. And with that, he fell silent, eventually offering that a growing, gnawing emptiness had crept up on him over the last months. Among other emerging desires, he realized he wanted a relationship with his children who basically despised him. Of course, he had been absent for much of their lives. While he had many other sorts of relationships, he realized none of them really mattered at the end of the day, and though his money provided every sort of diversion, he felt adrift. Maybe it was a kind of late midlife crisis, he offered, but of an opposite variety from what we normally heard about. He said that generally when describing a midlife crisis, we identified an otherwise grown-up man or woman acting out, stepping stepping out of a perceived boring or imprisoning rut in some big-time way. And with a kind of half-hearted laugh, he added that he had been acting out his entire life. What brought him to me was a kind of awakening or, or well, he was hard-pressed to say just what exactly had whomped him on the side of the head. A couple of weeks ago, he awoke with a start from a fitful night's sleep with two words lingering in his mind as though they had just been spoken. Come home. They still felt as fresh today as they did that morning. He didn't remember anything else he had dreamt, just those two words echoing in his head. Often walking by this church, he stepped through the doors and sat down the morning after he had awakened from his dream. He hadn't consciously connected any dots to cause this short step from the sidewalk to the sanctuary. It was just a spontaneous decision. But here's where it gets a little silly, Steve, he he added. He couldn't remember the last time he had been to a church. Long, long ago, he'd thrown off any sort of interest in religion or spirituality, thought it was mostly a lot of baloney, and anyway, would likely interfere with this sort of life he wanted. And like he said, it wasn't that he was feeling especially guilty, just empty, just empty. 
really empty and teary. Now that really shocked him. When he sat down in here and looked up into the golden mosaics, his eyes welled up with tears, he said. Something like that had never happened before. He couldn't remember the last time he had cried about anything. Tears weren't part of his normal experience. But he also knew that somehow they linked up with that short phrase, come home, which now resonated loudly, nearly clobbering him with a splitting headache. Well, for the next several mornings, he stopped into this space and then on the following Sunday made what was for him a completely counterintuitive decision to go to church. Imagine his surprise when the message that morning was all about our existential and spiritual experience of finding our true home. He said that in the sermon I even mentioned that many people who stuck around this place, despite where they were from, reported how they walked in and felt oddly at home when first crossing the threshold. That's the track that brought him to my office. Now, friends, when someone describes a a serendipity like this, I am humbled and made alert to the fact that I'm at my best when I recognize God is already three steps ahead of where I think I ought to be. I can fall into the trap that the spiritual quest is all about my effort and forget that but for God's gracious and dynamic presence, all my effort would mean nothing. I need always to remember to keep my hands, heart, and head open clear about who's who and what's what. Here's another confession. I wasn't sure I liked this guy very much. I can tell you this because I actually said it to him at some point in the course of our developing relationship. Something he said at one point led me to say, well, you know, when you first walked in here, into my office, I wasn't certain at all that I was going to wind up liking you. I had a visceral negative feeling. Of course, I was also intrigued by his story, which seemed completely guileless. In fact, that was the real disjunction in his whole presentation. I sensed he was normally full of guile. That's who he was. Well, he said as much, really. But his recent experience had disarmed him. It would, he would not have come to speak with me, an anonymous minister, if this disarmament hadn't taken place. Now, I've learned over the years that when this sort of disarmament happens, I I must disarm as well. That's my job. I have to let go of my preconceived judgments and biases. As the cliché puts it, I have to let go and let God. I have to get out of my own way. 
But now it's hard to say exactly what makes persons open up to a truth that's larger than themselves. What cracks them open? Have you ever been cracked open? One of the first things that's acknowledged is that there is a truth that's larger than they are. Something is larger than them. Perhaps it's an especially 21st century bias that there is no truly larger, even sacred perspective than one's own. Or maybe that has always been the situation and we postmoderns have a narrower and sharper arrogance believing we invented this self-authenticating perspective. That's all there is. I don't know. But I do know by both personal and communal experience and through reasoning my way through our tradition and scriptures that there is a truth larger than my own, that this truth should be spelled with a capital T and that the best language we have for this truth is what we refer to as religious or spiritual mystical language, language that reaches beyond material experience. And further, we discover our scriptures remain relentlessly valuable in helping us unlock the meanings of our lives even in the 21st century, even now. Now take this famous story of Zacchaeus, Violet read for us. We heard about a certain rich man. That's what the text says. He was very rich. He was a tax collector. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and Zacchaeus wanted to catch a glimpse of him in Jericho. Now in Roman times, tax collecting was rented out to the highest bidder, you actually bid to become a tax collector who then could extort whatever he could from the general populace. That's how they made their money. That's how Zacchaeus got rich himself. As a Roman lackey and a greedy profiteer, Zacchaeus was a much despised man as well as too short, evidently, to see over the crowds gathered to see Jesus entering Jericho. He likely would have been pelted with stones had he tried to approach the crowd accompanying Jesus. No one would have believed him if he had begun to make restitution of his own accord. The irony of it was that Zacchaeus expressed no desire to escape from his social ostracism. There's no word of that in our text. He just climbed the tree so he could have a better vantage point to see Jesus as he passed by. Was he, in the meantime, becoming vaguely conscious of the deep loneliness his profession had created? Did, did he have even the faintest beginnings of a guilty conscience or perhaps a gnawing emptiness? Did he simply feel really empty, though he was very rich? During a restless, sweaty night the night before, could he have awakened with two words in mind? Come home. He was oddly guileless. And this was a man who was normally chock full of guile. That's how he made his money. Somewhere from the day before to this tree climbing to see Jesus, he had been disarmed. 
I'm thinking he would not have welcomed Jesus into his home if this disarmament hadn't taken place. Jesus saw a man waiting to be redeemed. And by redeemed, I mean brought to his senses to see what's what and who's who. In this sense, Zacchaeus is every man, every woman. And although he risked being ostracized himself, Jesus sought him out. Once again, breaking all the barriers of social custom, Jesus invited himself to the man's house for a meal. Interesting, isn't it, that the idea of home comes into play here. In effect, Jesus made a home with this man that everyone else reviled. No word about whether or not he liked Zacchaeus, but he surely loved Zacchaeus. Radical scriptural principle number one. No one, no one is beyond the reach of divine love. No one. The experience changed Zacchaeus into a grace-filled man. In the excitement of what happened to him, he promised to be more than generous, giving half of his goods to the poor, the text says, and repay many times over whatever he had taken by fraud. You see, generosity was the mark of his redemption. Generosity was the mark of his redemption. Generosity was the mark that he now saw who's who and what's what. And Jesus then praised him as the son of Abraham, the Jewish ideal of a faithful servant of God. In other words, Zacchaeus came home, as it were, and his life took on a very different character. We might say he had a reverse midlife crisis. I'll leave it to you to discern how this might touch your own life. And since we're in our season of inviting you to funding our exciting vision for the years ahead, I will let you consider how or if generosity defines your life if it is a mark of your knowing who you are and whose you are. Putting this message together this week, I was reminded how really countercultural our life together can seem, and yet how profoundly relevant and necessary, how inspiring it is and elevating, especially today, especially in a political season that is the exact opposite of what I'm talking about.
Do you feel how compelling what we're attempting here is in the face of the current moment? Can you feel it, literally feel it in your being? Coming home here means coming home to what's best about our humanity, what's possible ahead. Coming home to hope and gratitude and love. Let's end this way. Suppose as you went home today, you encountered Jesus on the road and he invited him himself over to your home for brunch. Play that little vignette out in your mind as a little bit of homework. And imagine him saying, Today, salvation has come to this house.